Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. He is the Managing Director at Jahani & Associates, which is a middle market investment bank focused on cross-border transactions around the world. Welcome to the Money Answer Show, Joshua. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here. Just give us your brief uh, history and how you got to where you are today. Absolutely. So I started Jahani and Associates about four years ago because we saw a significant need in the middle market for emerging markets. So everything we do is touching the emerging markets in some way and the U.S. Uh, The U.S. is usually a hub for a lot of the transactions that we do. Um, And we serve clients all over the world, mostly holding companies, but we're very strong in Middle East, North Africa and Southeast Asia. We have about 50 employees today and we do mergers and acquisitions, capital placement, joint ventures and global trade. So let's start with the mergers and acquisitions. What are some of the trends you're seeing as far as companies being acquired and the acquirers? What kind of things are they looking for? So in the acquisitions that we work on, mostly middle market, lower middle markets, we're seeing a lot of uh, roll-up activity in certain kinds of tech-enabled service spaces. Uh, We recently closed a deal with a BPO business between a a Jamaican buyer and a Guyana seller. And these were essentially BPO businesses that were tech-enabled that used technology to lower their total costs inside the, the, the business. Um, as we see different companies rolling up different uh, cost leadership activities, such as, you know, uh, having a business that's able to deliver some kind of product or service uh, in a lower margin, they're scaling those margins. The buyers are scaling those margins uh, internally when they're larger buyers. So they're, they're tech acquisitions, but it's not pure technology. There's always a services component, particularly in cross-border space, because labor arbitrage is so common. When you look at companies outsourcing different kinds of things, whether they're professional services or more commoditized BPO services. By labor overseas. arbitrage, you mean uh, that the labor costs are cheaper overseas, and by acquiring something, they can lower their cost of labor. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Yeah. So we're seeing that a lot. And we're seeing that a lot cross-border because now that everyone's still more or less at home, they, uh, you know, if you're on the phone with Jordan or if you're on the phone with Sweden, it doesn't really matter. And if Jordan is cheaper, then talk to Jordan, the country. So, so t- talk about uh, what has been the impact of the pandemic and the COVID uh, situation on mergers and acquisitions that made for more of them or less of them? Well, it, it's we're seeing record high numbers. So it definitely slowed down in the beginning of the pandemic, but now everything is, is going, getting blown out of the water. In our space, our space has been, has been a little different because we're cross-border and we're touching the emerging markets, particularly Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia. And that space has been very interesting. We've actually seen quite a significant shift in the middle markets of that cross-border category. Because, like, take the UAE, for example. Take, take, take the, the Gulf countries. Tourism and hospitality is a massive part of that economy. And it's still struggling. They're fighting hard to bring it back, but you can't just have such low, low activity for so long and, and have it be the same. And so when that happened, it really did freeze the economies in a lot of ways. Cash suddenly gets constricted. The oil prices are always volatile. And so we did see these spaces get hit quite hard. 
they got hit quite hard in the middle market and lower middle market for these cross-border spaces. Where we've seen activity pick up, which is sort of an ancillary part of mergers and acquisitions, but is in the joint venture space. Uh, there's a lot of things we do in joint ventures that look like distribution agreements or different kinds of commercial relationships. And as people have been stuck at home, the ability, back with the example of talking to Jordan the country or wherever, the ability for an Emirati gentleman or woman to talk to someone based in California is remarkably similar. Time zone's a bit tough, but it's not that different than talking to someone in Egypt, in Syria, or in Saudi Arabia. And so I think that's helping stay some of the pain from the from the slower, lower middle market, middle market M&A activity in these, in these economies. Uh, but the mega deals are still very strong, and the U.S. is, is booming, as, as I'm sure you've seen. So you're saying that because people can do things over the phone and Zoom, that locality doesn't matter as much anymore. People can truly act on a global basis even more so than before the pandemic. Yeah, we've seen that a lot in the sort of, if you look at the pandemic since March 2020 up to now September, right, we're at about 18 months. The first nine months, that was not the case, what you just outlined, that was not the case, but that's surged to become the case in the most recent nine months as people have really started to settle into this new way of life where we're all across the, the world. One area you said you've done a lot of deals in is what you call digital out-of-home businesses. What do you mean by that? And maybe just give us an example or two. Sure, absolutely. So digital out-of-home is very exciting. Um, everyone is familiar with out-of-home, which is just a billboard. Out-of-home media is a billboard. People have seen these all over, the, all over the place. Digital is essentially just making that billboard reactive the way an ad would be reactive online um, by changing it if, in this case, Jordan Goodman is, is driving by and he really wants to have a pair of shoes and, and then they sh it shows an ad for shoes. This is why Facebook, Google, et cetera, make so much money is because they have data on who's browsing the internet and they're able to serve ads that are more relevant to that. Digital out of home is the exact same principle, but it's just with out of home, which is mostly billboards, but it can be in spaces like mobility, inside cars, all kinds of things. And, uh, and we've seen uh, actually really interesting dynamics with those companies because uh, they were very hurt in the beginning of the pandemic. And not all digital out-of-home is created equally, right? If you have digital out-of-home in office buildings, they're maybe still hurting, whereas digital out-of-home for major streetways is not hurting as much. And so there was a significant separating of the the people who were in a better position because they were not in more heavy hit industries like office out of home and maybe were more street level. And we've seen investors who are invested in media of appetite for that, uh, getting excited to pick up and, and partner with those kinds of assets that were in the more competitive side of the out of home category I just described. So you've seen some mergers between digital out of home businesses across borders? I have. Yes. And, and you, you see more coming in that area? I do, yeah. Because, so, so and interrupt me if this gets too, uh, too technical, but the you know, basic advertising is you know, your cost per uh, impressions, right? It's like selling eyeballs, right? So if you have a, a billboard, how many people walk by? And they break it down in terms of every thousand people that walk by. The cost of CPM, that's the CPM, so the cost of these impressions, very widely 
based on where you are. So when you look at New York City, Chicago, London, obviously these costs per impressions are very high because the people spend more money, they have more out-of-pocket uh, cash that they can go spend money on Adidas shoes or whoever gets advertised on this, this billboard. Um, the CPMs in Asia are very high. They're very high. And Asia has also been kind of depending on where you look, but they've been able to kind of uh, have a more consistent recovery than a lot of the Western nations. And so the CPMs in Asia and the companies that are performing very well there are becoming increasingly competitive when compared to uh, companies in like Africa or the Middle East. And so some come back to that surging and then pain companies in pain, those companies in places like Africa or the Middle East, some of them are still very distressed, but in places like Asia, they're very strong. And so they're using that cash to grow the business. And that would be their position. And are they typically doing these uh, mergers with cash or are they using uh, their stock as currency to buy other companies? Well, that's, a, that's a, it's probably more stock oriented now than, than, it would have been pre-pandemic because a lot of the companies that are in pain are more willing to take stock because they're less convinced that the value of whatever stock they have that's gotten beaten up during the pandemic is going to be worth something long-term. So we're seeing a, a larger stock component of transaction value these days than we would have in 2019. You have kind of a unique perspective on the competition and trade between the United States and China. Uh, where we've been importing a lot from China. We have huge trade deficits for them. They've been exporting a lot. What is your kind of evaluation of the U.S.-China trade relationship right now? Yeah, it's a great question. So the uh, Biden has has sort of continued on, on what I think his predecessors had, which was a relatively tough stance. Um, China is dealing with a lot of different global uh, Call, I'll just use the word fallout for lack of a better term right now, uh, because of everything that's been happening and people have issues with, uh, with how it's handled. Um, the U.S. really doesn't have the bargaining power that it used to 20 years ago. When you look at the rise of China's GDP, just on a cumulative basis, it's amazing. I mean, it's incredible. Forget the PPP uh, or forget the, you know, the per capita. But uh, the way that the, the company has been able to grow its GDP is amazing. And the U.S. really has to figure out politically, as well as transactionally and financially, how they can react to the fact that China has more power. They have more power today than they used to. And the U.S. isn't used to dealing with people on that scale of parity. Um, and there's a lot of politics, right? There's a lot of politics involved in that. I think at the end of the day, you know, we're going to see sort of tit-for-tat tariffs and different political things with regards to Hong Kong. But the, the bottom line is that China's influence is growing and the U.S. has to figure out how to deal with it and manage it in a way that it can maintain its, its political strengths, which I think Biden is doing overall right now. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is uh, Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. Uh, he is an expert on uh, cross-border mergers and acquisitions and other business deals. You can find out more at his website, which is jahaniandassociates.com. We'll be back after this. Wish you were in on some of the best-performing IPOs recently. 
our crowd investors were, and now you can join them in what's next. With our crowd, accredited investors have access to invest directly, easily, and most importantly, early. Our crowd investors have benefited from our crowd companies going IPO, such as Beyond Meat, or being bought by companies like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. Our crowd's investment professionals leverage their extensive network to review some of the most promising private companies and startups in the world. Their in-depth due diligence includes meeting with management teams and generally comprehensive vetting of deals they decide to make part of their own portfolio. Once our crowd has selected a deal, they offer accredited investors the opportunity to invest alongside them with the same terms. If you're an accredited investor, you can join our crowd for free at OURCROW.com slash answers and review the current deals. No payment is involved until you decide to participate in a deal. As we review deals, you have access to our crowd's investor relations team, who you can talk to directly on the phone about your personal investment goals. The investment professionals at our crowd already have reviewed thousands of companies, invested hundreds of millions of dollars, closed investments in over 200 companies, chosen dozens of companies that have made exits. Accredited investors can participate in a single company deal for as little as $10,000 or one of our crowd's funds for as little as $50,000. Now you can invest in consumer physics, which has developed the first portable lab-grade device that can analyze material at the molecular level, helping farmers boost production, improve efficiency, and minimize waste. Consumer physics has grown revenue over 100% a year for the last few years and is now used by over 50 global enterprise customers. Invest today at our crowd. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies. Join the fastest growing venture capital community out there at ourcrowd.com slash answers. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. 
We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. Uh, He is a managing director at Jahani & Associates, which is a middle market investment bank uh, that has a kind of a global view of the world economy. Welcome back to the show, Joshua. Thank you. Good to be here. One thing you're passionate about is space, and uh, you are concerned that uh, space is about to be monopolized by a few uh, tech billionaires, uh, kind of similar to what happened to the Internet. Tell us a little bit about your concern and what you think should be done there. Absolutely. So it's interesting to look at the space race and the major companies that are participating in it and compare what they've been sort of building uh, and, and how it may look in the future with other mass transit facilities. So if you look at space exploration in terms of mass transit, highways, railways, certain kinds of boats, airplanes, then you start to consider the impact that these uh, space race uh, facilities uh, would have on the overall population if they were excluded to only a few number of people. And I've been making the case, it was featured in a couple of different outlets uh, in the U.S., but I've been making the case that subsidies in any kind of space travel are a must because it will allow the more cost, the higher cost units, the unit of actually getting from A to B, which is going to be very expensive for the foreseeable future, will allow that cost to go down so that ancillary businesses and general economic activity and commerce can go up. It will make it easier if you think about in terms of starting a business in another planet that does manufacturing, if it's easier for you to get a a, a space shuttle up there and, and build your facilities, then you're going to be able to find investors easier, you're going to be able to develop the planet easier, and that's ultimately going to create more jobs rather than just consolidating wealth in these very ex- expensive joyrides uh, for only very wealthy people through the cost. And we see, we see use cases for this in like the Northeast Corridor Amtrak and how the train ride between Washington, D.C. and New York City is heavily subsidized. It's very subsidized because it creates more general economic activity. Um, and so that's, that's what I've been putting out there and it's been picked up. So what are some of the big uses of space, other than the space tourism business, what are some other industries that will be fostered by uh, exploration of space? I think industrials. So a lot of the guys, Jeff Bezos is, is more famous for saying this, is that, uh, that uh, space should be zoned industrial and the U.S. would be zoned residential. Uh, there's a lot of polluting activity. Global warming is, is you know, uh, a very common concern for everybody. And the ability to move a lot of that more hazardous manufacturing that supports a modern lifestyle off of the planet, off of the green planet, um, and into a place where it can be less harmful to the air we breathe and our atmosphere, 
uh, I think that's the future. So I think we're going to see this tremendous amount of industrial growth and manufacturing and power plants and different even tons of energy if we can figure out how to transport it uh, done off planet. And then the, the U.S. is zoned residential. Interesting. Uh, back on Earth, uh, an area you've been looking at is Djibouti, the port of Djibouti in Africa. You think that could be the next uh, Dubai or Singapore? Why do you think it has that kind of potential? So two very key reasons. One is the government, and then the second is its location with Africa. So people that work in global trade and do business internationally know that Africa and the U.S., and, sorry, in the world at least, is the final frontier. I guess space is now actually the final frontier. But there's a tremendous amount of economic opportunity in all kinds of different industries and infrastructure and payments and e-commerce in Africa because Africa is so large as a continent and has so many gigantic countries and such a large population. And until now, no one, there's a couple of funds that kind of go after it, but no one has really been able to to develop the kind of financial and capital market return system that we see in places like Europe, USA, and parts of Middle East, Asia, et cetera. And so Djibouti, based on its just physical location, is the prime spot to do that. It can help suck in trade from Asia and the Middle East. Uh, the government in Djibouti, at least based on the anecdotal stories that I've heard, is uh, reliable. Corruption is not an issue. And those are two factors that can allow the, the country to become a hub for what will clearly be uh, an area that creates many more unicorns and a lot of financial prosperity for both investors, companies, and citizens, which is Africa, over the next couple of decades. So are there ways to invest in that? If you think that's coming, how would one profit from that uh, development? Well, we have clients. We have clients in Africa that raise money and you know, do different things in telecom and payments and different kinds of marketing data. Uh, so there's those investment opportunities that exist. Um, there's also uh, infrastructure projects. We see a lot of Middle Eastern money going into infrastructure projects. We see a lot of money going into real estate. Uh, but it's the same formula that you see successful in the U.S. and other other regions, uh, finding, finding projects that have a, a way to create ROI through the use of uh, the citizens that surround it. More generally, in the Middle East, uh, you've been somewhat critical of President Biden's approach to the Middle East. Um, and what is your outlook of the, the future there for, for business, particularly in light of uh, U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan and the uh, conflict with Iran? Just kind of give us your, your view of the, the current straight uh, uh, trends in Middle East and business. Yeah, yeah. So the, the Middle East, so the Afghanistan situation, everyone, I think it's nearly unanimous. People feel like it should have been done significantly differently. Biden's held to his guns, but that's, a, that's just a tough one to, to, to defend in any way. And I haven't heard very many people try to defend it. Uh, in general, you know, what, what I think is causing so much issue for the long term, we've got to think long term for the Middle East, is that it's been a chessboard in so many U.S. politicians' political agenda for so long that it's really exacerbated problems that all regions have. All regions have issues uh, and conflicts. But this game of chess that the U.S. from so far away keeps insisting that it needs to play um, just exacerbates the problems. Uh, these leaders in the region, and there are many very strong leaders in Saudi Arabia, in the UAE, etc., need to figure out 
uh, and be given the opportunity to create their own peace and, uh, and to create their own stability, which everybody wants. Right? Certainly everybody wants stability and, and peace in the region. Um, and I think that, you know, the more chess moves, it doesn't matter what the chess move is, but the more chess moves that any kind of American politician tries to make in the region, the longer you delay any kind of self-sustaining stability uh, for, for the countries. And I think it's disappointing. But we see that all the time. So one relatively recent development is the kind of peace between Israel and a lot of the Gulf states, the Abraham Accords. Is that going to have a major stabilizing impact on having more commercial relationships between Israel and the Gulf states? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. There was business done before the Abraham Accords between Israel and particularly the UAE. But now that it's been officiated and it's out in the open, I think it's a, it's a tremendously good and beneficial thing. It'll allow more of these smaller and, and more founder-run companies to start expanding into the market. Israel itself is a very small market. And so most of the technology and a lot of the businesses in Israel are all about external-focused business activity, trying to affect impacts in the U.S. and in China and, in, you know, name your big country. Um, and the UAE is very similar. The UAE is very similar in terms of the UAE itself, about 8 million people. It's a relatively small market. And the big benefit of the UAE is ex external focus to places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and et cetera. And so I think that partnership between Israel and the UAE will be very beneficial because there's going to be a lot of tech synergy. And I think because of how international the UAE is, they'll be able to do business with Israel very easily. And we'll get to see a lot of great technology impact places that otherwise couldn't. And that's a good thing. What is your outlook for what's going to happen in Afghanistan? I mean, it's becoming a humanitarian crisis. They're running out of food. They have no uh, reserves. Uh, some people say that China may be uh, moving in there, uh, as it has in other places. What, what is your outlook for what's going to happen with the Taliban in Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, you've got Afghanistan, you've got Pakistan, you've got Iran over there. Uh, even in some ways, Lebanon's issues and sort of the destabilization of Lebanon recently, you've got these pretty significant economies that are on, on thin ground. And my outlook for Afghanistan is that they'll definitely strike deals with Russia and China so that they can get bailed out and nothing comes for free. And because of that, you know, slipshod uh, exit and uh, the weakness that the USA is in, that power vacuum will be filled by people that may not have the, the U.S.'s best interests at heart. So what, specifically, what does that mean? Is China going to do loans to them? Are they going to move businesses in there? Apparently, there's a lot of strategic minerals they can get. I mean, specifically, what would China do in Afghanistan? Yeah, I, they'll probably give them very low interest loans against their GDP that will give them liquidity to, to buy basic, uh, basic supplies, things like fuel, things like food, water, um, you know, in Afghanistan specifically. That's usually what we see. We saw that with Iran. China did the same thing with Iran. You know, COVID has been very hard for everybody. and Iran got hit particularly bad. And so they usually end up giving these, like, sort of sovereign debt instruments that are super low interest and help governments have liquidity to spend on services. In return for influence, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. It's usually how it works. Yes, very good. Okay. All right, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani 
Uh, he is an expert on uh, middle market investment banking and uh, trade around the world. You can find out more at his website, jahaniandassociates.com. We'll be back after this. What do you send on subscriptions every month? Most of us think we spend $80 a month. Sometimes it's $200 a month or more. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people are saving thousands of dollars a year with Truebill. See all your subscriptions in one place, keep the ones you want, cancel the ones you don't, right from the app. And your Truebill concierge is there if you need to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. No talking to humans, no difficult conversations. Truebill has over 2 million users and has helped save them over $100 million. In one case, a guy had $660 a year for direct TV that he didn't even remember that he was paying. Another one saved $120 a year on their Sirius XM bill. Another one saved $840 a year on car insurance. You can save as well. So start canceling your unused subscriptions at Truebill.com slash MoneyAnswers. Go right now to Truebill.com slash MoneyAnswers. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. He is a uh, managing director of Jahani & Associates, which is a middle market investment bank talking about cross-border transactions between the U.S. and around the world. Welcome back to the show, Joshua. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here. So you have very strong views about corporate taxes. Uh, The bill is about to go through the House and Senate. May or may not happen, but likely to happen. 
would raise corporate taxes from a current rate of 21% to maybe 265 or something like that um, in order to pay for all these social programs and infrastructure. Do uh, you, th- you think that's the right move or not to uh, raise corporate taxes? Yeah, I do not think it's the right move. I think it was, it's two things, really. It's one, it's just raising corporate taxes in general. And then two is uh, this idea about a global tax rate. Um, so in terms of raising taxes in general, um, I am not of the typical ilk that you see in a lot of financial service professionals where it's just like this very consistent trickle-down economics. I see the benefit. I think living in the, in the Northeast for so long in the U.S. has shown me the benefit of investing in community. And there's a tremendous amount of value in putting money into social programs that, that make things better for everybody. So I don't have this sort of myopic view of, of, of low taxes is all that matters. But uh, I, get, um, I get disappointed when a lot of the, the regulation tends to come around. It's usually around people who have jobs. And people who make kind of like this, they're not like super wealthy, but they're kind of between like 200 grand up to like a million, you know, so, so like employees, but still people like partners and directors. And a lot of times these sort of tax hikes really just end up hitting those people who are wealthy. And I, I don't want to paint these people's lives as that they're under distress, but as people who are still kind of in a middle class category. Uh, because they're having to pay for services and they have to pay for childcare and they have to pay for school, et cetera. And so when the government steps in and creates these sort of uh, broad sweeping tax uh, reforms and just says we're going to increase taxes, there's always so many loopholes that the true wealthy are always able to get around. And we see this all the time, both on the corporate side and the individual side. But it's those people who maybe don't have that higher level of sophistication that really end up getting hit by the burden. And I think it creates less incentive for these people to have income mobility, uh, which, which is important. We, we want to motivate people to, to earn more money so that they can create more in the economy. So that's the first piece. I just, I just don't appreciate the typical sort of liberal, I'm using air quotes, liberal tax policy. But then also this, this idea about this universal global tax, which to me is just as... Um, it's just a political soundbite that's really just meant to uh, try to suggest something that's not even possible. And it kind of gets to the same point about how when you try to get in a little club, which are these, these countries, these more developed countries that say, hey, we're going to have a global minimum tax, there's always going to be people outside of the club. There are Cayman Islands, Bermuda, different countries internationally. And the people that can't figure out the capital markets infrastructure to go outside of the club and sort of legally uh, find legal loopholes. Uh, the people who cannot do that, which are generally more middle-income people, are the ones who get crushed. And I think that it, it, has a, it doesn't have the effect that people want, although they may feel good about it when they talk about it on, on TV. So the Treasury Secretary of the United States, Yellen, says that she wants to prevent this so-called race to the bottom, where all these countries are competing to offer lower and lower tax rates to attract business, and this hurts the revenues of the, the, the countries, developed countries need. And some 200 or so companies of countries have signed on for this 15% uh, minimum tax. You, you don't think it's going to happen? If, if it were to happen, what would be the impact of that? I, I don't think that 
it's going to create the benefits that people expect. I'm a big fan, like I said, of spending money in government programs, but it needs to be done efficiently. And there's a long list of, of great Democrats, as well as Republicans, and any party you want, that have advocated and implemented government efficiency to be more efficient with dollars. I think that's something that crosses all party lines. But where things start to get silly is where it just becomes this narrative that more is always better, which is very typical for certain kinds of politicians. Just say we need more and more and more. It's really not the case because they have a lot. They need to do better with what they have and they need to be more efficient. And I think that's where where people start to get lost in the tax debate is that it becomes just paying more because you feel it starts to feel like charity to some people rather than saying, no, you need to operate by a set of standards that is uh, demanding and that uh, that would be the same set of standards that a a private business would would look at uh, or at least similar to that. And I think that's, that's the big disconnect with a lot of these politicians. This relates to another area, which is the uh, the green economy, I guess you'd say. And we have this uh, kind of follow-up to the Paris Accords coming up in Glasgow pretty soon, where they're going to be trying to lower emissions uh, using carbon credits and all kinds of taxes. What, what is your outlook for the best way to get climate change under control? Well, that's, that's a very tough, <laughs> tough problem to solve. Um, Governments, uh, I, I, people look at governments as a tool for which it is not appropriate, I think, too often. Government has very limited, it's a very specific hammer to a nail. And society has issues like climate change is a great example. It's a very nuanced, very complex, very difficult problem to solve. And governments, more or less, collect money, and then spend it, right? And they spend it in military or they spend it in domestic social kind of stuff. Um, And so when you look at those two levers, which are fairly simplistic levers, it always becomes uh, on one side a narrative from the government about cutting back or penalties or some kind of shaming piece, which is done through higher taxes. That's the penalty piece. Um, And then in another way, it's just this more spending uh, on green initiatives, Etc., which I think are important, but uh, still need to be more well thought out, which we talked about in the, in the previous question. And so I don't think that the long-term solution to uh, climate change can be really government-driven, and it has to be based on private citizens and on consumer spending behavior to focus on trying to generate better outcomes for their own life. And, and I, I just hope that the problems don't get so large before we were able to see people change that spending behavior. And are you seeing that happen? Are you seeing a change in consumer spending behavior that'll help uh, reduce climate uh, problems? We see it, I see it with younger people. Younger people seem to be much more focused on the issues of climate change. There's all kinds of different influencers and things we see on the news. Um, it just comes back to really, you know, is it going to be too late? And then what kind of technology and science can allow us to cut off certain more acute problems, uh, like, you know, oceans being so heavily polluted and getting those cleaned up and different kinds of treatments that we, we can provide to nature. But I'm optimistic. It's just a question of timing. 
So you're saying if the governments can't really do it, then the private sector has to do it. So how would that work to have the private sector clean up the oceans and stop polluting and all the things that need to be done to uh, you know, roll back climate change? When you look at capitalism and the way that you know, 99.9% of the economy is driven, it really is diametrically opposed to um, you know, preventing climate change and to a more sustainable living because it's about consumption. It's just consume, consume, consume. And so I wouldn't say private sector so much. I would say it, it kind of, it becomes more on just like individuals and, and how the economy is driven. And, you know, you could look at it within like a, a Marxist view, which is that, okay, well, let's just <laughs> stifle all individual demand and control everything, which certainly would solve the problem. But I think that's, you know, not a good idea for so many reasons. Uh, but it, it's down to these individuals. And I think people seeing what the impact is, and I think we're seeing it, right? I mean, the pollution in California from the fires, they have so many friends who are leaving California and because it's like a tinderbox, right? It's so dry. We're seeing hurricanes bash the USA Gulf Coast consistently. We're seeing the same thing internationally. So, so I think it will change. I think human beings have to see that. Um, it's just a question of where that tipping point is. And it goes back to the space thing we were talking about. Because, like, you know, if we can zone Mars, industrial, then how much of an impact can that really have on, on climate change? And the anticipation is a lot. It's just a question of when we can get there. Very good. We're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. Uh, he is the managing director at Jahani & Associates, which is a middle market investment bank focused on cross-border transactions around the world. You can find out more at his website, jahaniandassociates.com. We'll be back after this. Every year, American businesses waste over $400 billion because bad writing causes confusion, misses the mark, or takes too long to get to the point. On the other hand, better writing helps businesses win and impress customers, enhance brand perception, improve internal communications, and strengthen relationships with critical partners. Better, faster writing means better business, which is why your team needs WordTune for teams. WordTune goes way beyond simple spelling and grammar correction, since its artificial intelligence engine understands meaning and offers writing suggestions to help anyone make their writing more clear and compelling. It's the ultimate tool to elevate your entire team's writing instantly. I was wondering how writing a tool, using a tool like this could possibly help, so I gave it a try. It's kind of like having a writing expert on call at any time to look at my drafts and suggest improvements. Now I don't have to waste time agonizing over the perfect sentence because WordTune offers the best alternatives and I pick the one I like best and it makes the changes in my text instantly. I was recently writing up a business proposal and WordTune gave me just the right words to get across why people I was writing to should approve the deal. You wand over the sentence or the block of text you've just written in WordTune and then suggest ways to improve it. And if I agree, I just click and the changes are made. Using WordTune makes me and my team confident that what we write will be optimized for maximum impact. When can your team use WordTune? It improves the performance on any project, everything from internal emails to press releases, sales outreach to customers, and so much more. You can use WordTune anywhere you're writing online, including Google Docs, Slack, Outlook Web, and WhatsApp. 
You can try WordTune for free at wordtune.com slash moneyanswers. Are you looking to elevate your entire team's writing? My listeners can get a discount for their team today at wordtune.com slash moneyanswers. WordTune improves writing efficiency up to four times. Better, faster writing means better business. Start writing better with WordTune by going to wordtune.com slash moneyanswers. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Joshua Jahani. Uh, he is a managing director at Jahani & Associates, which is a middle market investment bank focused on cross-border transactions. Welcome back to the show, Joshua. Thank you, Jordan. Good to be here. Let's talk about Bitcoin and the, the blockchain. A lot of controversy lately. Bitcoin's been very volatile. Uh, China is trying to make it illegal, and other countries are trying to clamp down on it, while other countries like El Salvador are making it their currency. What is your, your outlook for uh, Bit- Bitcoin and the blockchain here? So it's very important to, to separate the two. Um, it's a strange phenomenon, phenomena, that Bitcoin and the blockchain, like if blockchain technology is doing well, then Bitcoin is kind of, that goes up. It's this, it's become like an index for blockchain technology, which there's no real financial or, or strong business reason for that to be the case. It is certainly seems to be the case, but it, it shouldn't be. Um, so, so I want to sort of separate the two. Uh, I think Bitcoin is very interesting from a capital markets perspective. So I'll start there. Bitcoin is, uh, you know, can be used as a currency to store value. It, you know, you can buy and sell it for dollars. It has sort of this collectible uh, value. Uh, it's, it's a commodity. Um, and, you know, people own it, they collect it, whatever. Uh, I don't think it will ever be Bitcoin itself used as any kind of uh, large-scale currency just because the technology isn't fast enough to process transactions. But as a store of value, we're seeing use cases in Lebanon, Turkey, and Afghanistan. It's, uh, it is a fact that when you see governments start to uh, fail uh, or collapse, you see a spike in Bitcoin acquisitions in the region because the concern is that the cash will be useless uh, and it will get devalued significantly. And we see this, a bunch of stories about this, particularly in Afghanistan. Some of the, the largest users of 
cryptocurrency and Bitcoin are in these, these countries that have struggling economies. And that, I think, is very interesting and very good. I think it's a very positive outcome to help these people who don't want to see their life savings evaporate because of a corrupt government. Um, on the, on the, and so my, my, you know, just in that use case alone, my uh, outlook on Bitcoin is very strong, and, and I think it's important for those people to have some options. On the blockchain side, I'm super bullish. And I, I think it's already happening, but I think there's just going to be one day where we just wake up and everything is traded and, and transacted on a distributed ledger that's blockchain enabled. People won't even, won't even know it's, it's happened. Uh, blockchain kind of got, you know, it's because it gets so tied to Bitcoin and the regulatory issues that are genuine and exist with Bitcoin, blockchain kind of has to go through its own sort of vetting process as business leaders become more comfortable with it. But for certain, the, the technology of the future and, uh, and really solves a significant need that's arisen by such an interconnected and global capital market system that we have today. Specifically, what do you think about what China just did to try to make trading or mining or anything with Bitcoin illegal and basically ban it? Foolish. I think it's very foolish. Unless they're trying to come up with some kind of very effective alternative uh, these kinds of things don't don't work when you try to smash down on things that have genuine benefits. Um, it, it doesn't work. So they're just creating a larger uh, underground market for these kinds of things. And they're not going to stop it. And now they have to run around and chase new criminals uh, because they've updated these laws. You do a lot in emerging markets. Uh, China is very much in emerging markets, too, in investing. How does the United States compare to China in its influence on emerging markets? Ooh, that's, so Southeast Asia is interesting. You've got to look at Southeast Asia. If, if we were on TV, we would, we would show a chart. When you look at the GDP growth of the Southeast Asian countries, uh, they've consistently risen. Southeast Asian countries generally have good governments. Southeast Asian countries have strong capital markets. Southeast Asian countries are wedged in between you know, sort of China, India up to the north, and then you've got Australia down at the south, and then you've got, you know, your Hong Kong, et cetera, still a bit north, um, and Japan. So, so these Southeast Asian markets, I believe, are very important for the future. They have great tech talents. They've got a super young population. They're solving some of the world's most difficult challenges. We have clients there. Um, China is very influential in that market just because of proximity. And the U.S., I think, struggles a bit more, again, just due to proximity. And I think that the opportunity that China has exploited to become more engaged in those markets will create a foothold that will make them much more relevant than they otherwise would have been. Because Southeast Asia is also so externally focused. And it has sort of the same thing like we were talking about with Israel and the UAE, where it's Singapore's you look at the trade openness index of Singapore, it's sky high compared to any other country. Um, and I think that those emerging markets that China is very strong in and will continue to develop strengths in uh, is, is giving the country a, a big advantage. So do you think American investors should be investing in Southeast Asian uh, companies and, and uh, communities? Yeah. So this is, there, there's a huge missed opportunity for USA investors 
And, and the USA investors, rightfully so, focus domestically. It's a huge market. You've got a great legal system. Why get bothered with what's going on in Southeast Asia or the Middle East? But the growth of the world, this is my premise, and this is sort of the premise of Jahani and Associates, the growth of the world is not just U.S. focused. Other parts of the world are growing much faster and will just grow in relevance over time. And the U.S. investors do not do a great job of participating in that growth. And if they continue to fall behind and they continue to just sort of be so narrowly focused in their markets that they know very well and that they've made a lot of money in, they are going to wake up in 20 years and realize that they now have to fight to get involved with a lot of these upcoming unicorns, et cetera. And, uh, and they need a strategy. They need a perspective. They need some kind of thesis on how to deal with these regions, this sort of cross-border acquisition. That's a, that's a lot of what we do. We do a lot of acquisitions where we represent USA companies buying Middle East or Southeast Asian businesses. And, um, and it helps. It's good for them. In the roughly two minutes we have left, why don't you kind of sum up the opportunities and the perils of the current economic situation as we've described it here? So within our, within my perspective, it's all about cross-border, right? We're very focused on this cross-border space and how it touches Latin America, Middle East, North Africa, Southeast Asia, and the USA. Uh, so the perils that exist is really just companies being able to navigate the risks of these new markets. And a lot of those perils can be mitigated by focusing on certain kinds of industries that may be more stable. And that's really just market research and knowing what the market is. I think the opportunity, as we see, even despite the pandemic, we see a more interconnected global economy and it grows in its connection every, every day. The opportunities are very high. And the U.S., we're very lucky. We're fortunate to have opportunities to have strong capital markets that allow us to invest in and develop and acquire assets internationally. And the U.S. companies need to do that. Well, very good. We've covered a lot of ground. Uh, my guest this hour has been Joshua Jahani. Uh, he is a managing, the managing director at Jahani & Associates, which does a lot of cross-border interactions we've talked about between the U.S. and emerging markets around the world. You can find out more about him at his website, jahaniandassociates.com. Thanks so much. We've covered a lot of ground, and I think it's been very interesting to the audience, Joshua. Thank you. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.